Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. So welcome back to the Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast. I'm Nick Carman, your host. And this evening, I'm sat with Lisa Gledhill, Managing Director of Development for EcoWorld London. Now, Lisa has a career spanning 25 years in development and project management in London and Singapore. And at EcoWorld, Lisa is responsible for their existing portfolio, which includes the developer's £600 million build-to-rent development Q Bridge and its partnership with the Poplar Harker, the 20-year-long transformation of Aberfeldy in East London. So, Lisa, thank you very much for joining me. Good afternoon, Nick. Nice to be here. Well, should we get started? Do you want to tell us how Chapter 1 begins? Um, I think Chapter 1 begins at secondary school, probably around about the age of 15, 16. I went to an all-girls convent school in Bradford, and I had a a set of teachers who were very, very determined that they were going to encourage girls into STEM subjects. And, and so it began. So my um, academic career began in terms of science subjects and the likes. And um, yeah, they were, they, they were the foundation to what I was uh, going to go on and do. Interesting. Interesting. Didn't have to drag you kicking and screaming? Or did this feel a natural, natural fit at that stage? There was a bit of kicking and screaming getting to school at all, because it, <laughs> uh, it was quite dull, really, in the in the grand scheme of things, and I had a lot more interesting things that I could have been doing uh, outside of school. But fortunately, I, um, I had a sort of a, a pretty strong uh, work ethic. I knew what I wanted to do, not specifically what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to achieve. I've been ambitious right from um, you know the beginning of time. I've had high ambitions, not necessarily around anything specific, but just to achieve. And so there was something inside my core that steered me through those times that meant I stuck near enough to the straight and narrow to be able to get the grades I needed and to get to university and, and so on. All right then. So is this the next chapter? Uh, yeah, so well, I mean, my my entry into um, engineering was because I went on a, a women into science and engineering course at Bradford University that my geography teacher um, had encouraged me into, um, into going along to. And that was a weekend where you spent time with different types of engineers understanding what the different disciplines were about and frankly that was very useful because most of us don't know what different engineers do we still think that engineers fix the telly fix our cars and so on and so it was lovely to have that introduction into into the world of professional engineering you know technical engineering and so on and so I, I saw all the different subjects and had exposure to it but the one thing that did strike me was that most of they were all men in fact they were all men and they all used a lot of he pronouns and it really switched me off. They weren't signaling something that I could be part of, even though, bear in mind, all the attendees were female. They they were not signaling that this was a place for me, except for the civil engineers. And they were a lot more inclusive. They were a lot more passionate about what they did and interested in, in, in what they did. And um, in it, rather than the subject matter itself, it was that spark of interest that actually piqued my interest rather than the inherent subject itself. And that was very simply why I chose civil engineering. There was nothing more complex to it than that. It was seeing somebody that looked like they were having a pretty good time doing what they did. But it can make such a difference, can't it? And obviously it did to, it did to you at that very, very early stage, but it's so easily overlooked. Well, let's get going. 
let's get going. So let's say let's hear about sort of now the uh, sort of post university. You know what what were you getting yourselves first involved in? I was very very fortunate, and again, it was more luck than judgment. Um, I, I I didn't have the benefit necessarily of great careers advice around me, and so the, you can be strategic to a sense, but a lot of it comes down to to good luck. I was lucky enough. I I, I wrote ninety eight letters. Uh, in 1993, when I graduated, the market was not exactly great. And I wrote that many letters of self-introduction to companies in order to try and get a graduate uh, job. And one of them was Arab. And I got an interview with Arab. It wasn't part of their base recruitment um, program. I'd missed that. It was a direct engagement with Arab. And I went along to Lon- in London to, um, to see them in Camden and was fortunate enough to get a job offer. In fact, I had two job offers that particular uh, time, fortunately. I had one in Wales uh, with a, a little nondescript organisation and I had an offer for Arab in London. And I was going to take the little nondescript uh, offer. And the reason was I didn't want to live in London. And a friend of mine said, well, have you ever lived in London? Have you even really been to London? And I just had this very northern attitude to London, which was, I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, I was going to avoid it um, simply for that reason. And this is, these are the sort of, um, these are the very binary decisions that you can make as a young person that, you know, they're they're grounded in in things that are not even real. So he said to me, look, how about you take the job? This is Arab, for goodness sake. Take the job, go and try it. And then if you don't like London, you can move to some, you know, some other place that you feel more comfortable um, but I've, I've been and gone from London, but essentially I am now a Yorkshire Londoner. <laughs> well, I, from a personal point of view, you know, the listeners now will, will know I'm from the north and I uh, I commute regularly down to, down to London. But on my train, I'm always amazed at the number of people who are on their first trip down to London. And these are not school kids. Uh, uh, so it is it is always quite fascinating to see uh, see that sort of uh, and appreciate that as well okay so apart apart from having a mutual sort of affiliation to the north uh, i'm looking forward now to getting us sort of stuck into these early days with with arab now did it live up then to the promise of those uh, sort of sparky civil engineers from the um, that that first presentation <laughs> By and large. <laughs> yeah, it did. It was a fantastic start to my career. Arup is, uh, I mean, this was uh, a while ago, but, you know, the, the tabs that I keep on it, I think it's in, it's kept these inherent um, qualities. It's a fantastic organisation. And, um, you know, it's obviously got a very unique ownership structure, which means that its people are very important. And um, it was the best introduction, the best grounding as a graduate life skills, you know, world, um, professional wide skills, not just technical skills. It was a fantastic place. And I, I can appreciate that much more looking back than probably I did at the time. And what are you learning at this stage? You're learning everything from, you know, communication, from teamwork, from um, just how to interact effectively with the world. Um, so you're learning about yourself, you're learning about self-awareness and you're building your, your toolkit as an individual to be effective as well as then the knowledge bank and, and so on as a technical person to, to have the skills to bring to bear technically. They're no good if you can't actually land them in the way that um, you know you want to in order to be effective. So they do teach you as a graduate. You go on a, a sort of a five-year journey as a graduate 
and the amount of investment through that five-year period is really is quite incredible. Again, I don't know whether it's still the case today, but it was um, it, it it was really um, very much appreciated looking back. And even even things like a you know, a grammar course, I went on a I went on a grammar course for a day to learn how to um, be more grammatically correct. <laughs> very. Rounded. I assume that was just to all northern uh, uh, yeah. graduates, wasn't it? Yeah, I think state, state school graduates. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Bit, of, bit, of, bit of Queen's English. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned there the word about uh, appreciated, and, and that's a nice little segue, because you told me sort of very, very early on, you've had this ambition. At the very earliest stages of, of your career, was that encouraged? Yes, very much so. My, my, um, my mother was very important in that uh, groundwork. She always taught me to have aspirations. She never laughed at any of the, um, you know, uh, crazy things that I saw myself doing. At 12, if you'd have asked me what I wanted to be at 12, I used to say I wanted to be the chair of ICI. And that was, you know, that at 12, I was kind of conscious enough to set my bar. The point of that was there are no limits. The bar is set wherever I want to get to. And, and that was at 12, you can only have that because of what's around you. I don't think that's not that's not in your DNA. That's in 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 your taught environment. So, yeah, I was very much encouraged to um, to, to shoot for the stars. OK, OK. What was the first mile marker then at the career at this stage for you? So the, the initial training with Arup was very much aimed around getting professionally qualified. And so after five years, I um, did get chartered as a, a civil engineer. So with the Institution of Civil Engineers. And then after a sort of few more years of application and quick whistle through project management roles, uh, I became engaged with a, a digital product that Arup um, had started to produce. And the idea here was that the industry, uh, I, the industry has got a lot of improvements to make. It's not a manufacturing environment. It's a very project by project environment. Each team comes together differently and that inherently has a lot of issues. So there were a lot of products out there starting off with collaboration tools, which were aimed at how can we get the uh, industry to be more effective? And, and that's what Arup was doing. So that that's where I transitioned into the digital world, learning about these tools and interfaces that would allow the industry to be more effective. The product was called Arup Integration, which it actually, it was very successful and then it sold it to another organisation. So I that was my, uh, the point at which I transitioned out of Arup because really I'd kind of moved on from its core technical base and I'd now got a taste for this digital world. So I moved over to, um, uh, to a startup organisation called ASI and they were aiming to do exactly the same sorts of things, which was they had a suite of products aimed at improving, improving the collaboration, the communication, the tendering, the procurement, and so on and so forth in the construction industry. That you know, organisation still exists today, but in a very different uh, sort of form to, the, to that time. So it was really at the forefront, and it was a coming together of a load of organisations. There was Stanhope, there was uh, Bovis, a number, of, a number of BAA. There was a number of organisations that came together to try and fix these problems. Now, bear in mind, this was around about, 2000 mm -hmm. um so it, from a time point of view unfortunately a lot of those problems we were trying to solve in those days they're still problems today so we were we were only slightly successful how uh, i'm curious to move the technical to the digital 
did you consider, was that a risk for you as a career? Was that a risk of being considered too fluffy compared to sort of the very sort of technical roles you'd had on before? I mean, it was still it was still very technical in the sense that it was still in the same sector, so it was still supporting the uh, you know infrastructure, real estate, construction sector, but it was it was much more specialised. And one of the things that I say to describe my career is that I've been a serial specialist. So you can some people are generalists in that they've always skirted across the top, mm-hmm. but I've I've been a serial specialist, which leads me to being a generalist because I've covered a lot of ground. Okay, but each time I've moved through the chapters of my career, I've actually delved quite deep into that particular area. So actually what I was what I was doing was quite technical in its own way. So it wasn't remotely fluffy. <laughs> but it was very people-centric. It was, much, it was very much about problem solving. It was about the, the industry is all about teams coming together and that creates lots of interfaces and lots of issues. And it was how can you make that more effective? Communication is at the heart of this information sharing how can we improve that so that we speed things up and and um, you know make the outcomes um, more effective now i asked you in the, in the earliest chapter about what you're learning at this stage what what are you learning now so th- this was quite an interesting phase because i'd gone from a very um very stable organization you know long-standing organization with a very strong structure in in arab into a startup so now it's much more entrepreneurial. It's much more fluid. There was a lot of comings and goings, uh, some of those voluntary, some of them not. And so it was a very, very different environment. And actually what I tuned into was my commercial DNA. Um, and I, I realized that I am inherently a highly commercial person. And so it was what worked well there was the combination of, the, of my knowledge of the sector, this new knowledge that I'd learned in digital, but, in, but it being applied in a commercial way because it it was still fighting to um, to to be cost effective. It was still fighting to be profitable. So there were, I started to move into this more commercially aware space, which frankly I hadn't been in at Arab. Okay. So that's what we're learning now. Sort of my my hypothesis is that everyone's career goes through the same cycle of learning, consolidation, and then catalyst. So correct me if I'm wrong, but that learning must end. And then in order to get it, you know, to make that leap then from, from that digital period up until where Lisa is now, there has to be some sort of catalyst. So what was the Lisa there at that stage? What was the catalyst in order to get you back into a learning phase? Yeah, I think that um, for me, learning never ends, but there's a sort of formal learning and the unfor- uh, informal learning. And um, so if you, I think you mean the sort of more formal learning. I actually decided towards the end of that, um, that phase of, uh, of my life that I wanted, to, I wanted to create a stronger foundation to this commercial uh, understanding. Um, and I realised that for, in financial terms, I was actually not that knowledgeable. So I went back to university to do a postgraduate diploma in financial management. Um, and that was sort of two nights a week at Westminster University for a year. So it was very, um, it was substantial, but it was it was palatable and doable. And, um, you know, I came away with that. It, it's an incredible thing. One of the things that I learned on, on that um, course was, for, for example, financial instruments. I didn't even know financial, financial instruments, can you say it? I didn't even know financial instruments existed. 
And so to go and learn about something in the world that you, you don't know is there. So I mean things like swaps and forwards and futures and all these sorts of things. I just found it fascinating. But as well, it taught me about, you know, stat reporting and it taught me about investment strategies and that kind of thing. So now I'm armed with this knowledge about things in the world that I really didn't know about. And I, I needed to do that to go out into the world and find that my next place. I didn't want to do that. I guess this is probably a common theme with me is that when I'm looking to pivot to somewhere else, I like to do it with a badge or a I like to do it with from a from a foundation of something very substantial, something something real and meaningful. So in that case, it was get this qualification in financial management so that I could pivot into a different space, but you know, with something of substance, and, and that's what I did. I applied to a call out from Langer Rock and went to talk to them on a number of different fronts uh, and joined them as an investment leader in the um, in the PFI space. So quite quite a quite a different move, quite a different job. Okay, it's in the same sector, but a very 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 different role. Now I always ask this question at this point: How risky did that feel for you at the time? Well, it's probably more risky for them than it was for me, to be fair. But I, did, I didn't have a lot to lose. But I think um, I, there were definitely um, there's a lot of phrases like "fake it till you make it," and um, I think if you are someone who's got the confidence in yourself and you've got the learning agility and you've got the ears, you can you can go into an environment and you can pick it up on the fly. Um, and and that's what I did. You know, I I went into meetings not really knowing what was happening around me, what was what was being talked about in those early few months. But I was a quick learner and I picked it up. I still had something to add, um, but I was careful about where I applied that. I didn't speak out of turn. You know, I was careful in my in my in the application of my thoughts and what I had to offer uh, until I had a little bit more of a grounding. But it literally was in an environment where I was learning and understanding on the fly. And that was terrifying. I think I'm inherently someone who likes to have, um, I like to have a good footing. I like, I, like to, I like to know what I'm talking about. I don't like to be caught unawares. And I, I definitely don't like to be, think, I don't like to feel like I'm making a fool of myself. Who does? But, um, you know, it, it, it's important to me that I, I understand what I'm talking about. And in that environment, so you sound like the sort of the antithesis of fake it till you make it. Well, <laughs> uh, yes, I suppose it's a bit of a fake it till you make it, but with an authentic core or something. I don't know, but <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's definitely a space I can I can only occupy it for a short period of time. That's for sure. Okay, Lisa. So uh, I've asked you this sort of uh, each sort of uh, moment in each sort of chapter. So again, what did you learn from that chapter with Langs? So it was, um, I was, I was with Langerock for five years and um, it's a very definite uh, organisation. I enjoyed my time there. It was fast and furious and I worked in a lot of different commercial, legal, financial environments within that PFI space. And so I really honed my skills. I honed my contract skills. I honed you know, a, lot, a lot of exposure to making very, very, very complex things come together. So I, I learn about how it's really important to bring the commerce, the legals and the finance together with the technical aspects of developments, of infrastructure and so on, and how those threads pull together in order to make a successful outcome. So I, 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 I walked away from Langer Rock with a really good steeped understanding of those things and took that to Lendlease. 
Well, don't leave us on that cliff edge. Carry on. <laughs> so I started off doing um, a very similar thing at Lendlease. Um, but what happened quite quickly was that um, uh, there was a very a big change in the sort of PFI environment. And Michael Gove announced that he was the education secretary at the time. And he announced that he was stopping the BSF program, the Building Schools for the Future program. And that meant that a lot of the stuff that I'd been working on at the time, which was a schools program, stopped. So any any new business around that stopped. And and also, um, not only did it stop for new things, it stopped for existing PFI schemes. There was going to be no new schools in those deals. So now it moved into creating business to saving business, to sort of, okay, how do you take what you know within these contract environments and so on and make it work in this very new environment that it sits within um so how commercially can you make it how can you make it work so it was very it was a very sort of again it was a very technical aspect but different sort of technical but it was a commercial technical aspect to these deals and how to make them work but the great thing about Lendlease was that although it was at face value a very similar space it was an incredibly different organization culturally very very different to Langle Rock and I was identified quite early on. I'll give a big shout out to a colleague of mine, Ben O'Rourke now, who um, I worked for initially. And he was one of those great people in life that was not threatened by people that worked for him who were talented. He, he wanted to encourage you. He wanted you to bring you up alongside him. And he picked me out um, in terms of potential. And that meant that I joined the sort of corporate programs with Lendlease in leadership space. So they invested an incredible amount of money in me over time, uh, obviously along with a lot of other people. And I did various um, different courses and different programs with the likes of INSEAD, which were just incredible. They were to be, it's so privileged to be allowed to go on those sorts of things. They're so interesting and you learn so much about yourself. But now most importantly, I realized it's not just about yourself, it's about the impact that you have on other people. Um, and of course, I knew this before, but I started to learn it as a subject. I started to learn the difference between being a manager and a leader. And I started to understand how I could impact other people directly and indirectly in a, in a way that I wanted to make things better and easier for people that followed me. I wanted to help people in their careers. And I, I wanted to, you know, again, corn it. I wanted to make a difference to people. I wanted I wanted their interaction with me to be meaningful and in helping them on their career trajectories. So that was a sort of a real awakening in me about this, oh, not only can I impact these deals, these financial outcomes, these technical outcomes, I can actually have this impact on people. Uh, Lisa, this is a, a nice segue because I want to I bring in something we learned from our research. Now, this is, this is someone who you had exactly what you said there. You had an impact on their career. Now I asked them to to, to 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 sum up a little bit about sort of, you know how they how they perceived you at that time. This is what they said: as a woman in the construction industry, where so many people feel an imposter syndrome, Lisa exudes confidence, fight, and is a huge role model and support to colleagues. Now that's nice to hear, right? Um, Lovely. What I wanted to just do to dig into a little deeper there about. That confidence that you exude, do you feel that? And if and if so, sort of where does that come from? 
or is or is that is that a mask? It's not a mask. I think that I um, I am an inherently confident person. I think that you know the, a lot of these things are you know personality traits. They're what you carry from childhood and and so on. I think I am pretty confident uh, at my heart, but imposter syndrome. I mean, that's an interesting thing that comes up a lot. It's something that I talk a lot to people in my team about and and have done over the years. Of course, there are times when my confidence is knocked. Of course, I'm impacted by people around me, by my bosses and and the things that the way in which they interact with me uh, and so on and so forth. So I am not always, I'm not always confident, but I'm mostly confident. But it doesn't come, it's not regardless. I don't, I'm not arrogant. So the, the confidence, the confidence comes from a strong sense of belief, a strong sense of purpose. And I, I know that at my heart, I want to do the right things. And therefore I've got confidence in that. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. And uh, I, I interrupted. We were just getting into the meat, weren't we? The conversation about, about Lenlace. Yeah, so, um, you know, I had a, um, well, how long was I there? I think it was eight years. And I think I had nine roles in eight years. So <laughs> it was uh, it was, it was was fast and furious again. And um, I, I covered a lot of different ground. I mean, I think one of the things about my career, even through these chapters, is that, I, you know, I've worked on the consulting side, the design side, the digital side. I've worked on the sales side, the business development, the finance, the commercial, the development, the investment. I, I have worked in in construction. I've worked on pretty much every aspect of of this um, of this sector, and I think that is that's my USP. I think, but Lendlease was a big part of that because I covered a lot of ground while I was there, and including you know working in the UK in London, but also working overseas as well. And, and the thing about working overseas that you know I always say is, it's not so much about if you go. If you go to another country, another culture, you know to be mindful of the of your interaction. You know to be mindful that you've got different cues that what is um, what is received and what is intended might not be the same thing. So you, you you're very purposeful, especially to begin with, until you sort of find your feet. And what that does is it 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 makes you put a mirror up to yourself about the way that you are perceived and the way that you interact. So it, you go away to another country and you learn about that culture and you learn about a way of life. And that's fantastic. But it, it's a brilliant opportunity to learn a lot about yourself as well in a different, in a very different setting. So that that was one of the things that Lend-Lease gave me was the opportunity to go and, and, and be in Singapore for a few years. And I met some lovely people out there and, um, you know, had a, had a marvellous time, but a very challenging time as well. Um, but I, I learned a lot about myself. So I think I came back even even clearer on who I am and, and what I wanted. And what was it at that time? What did you want at that time? I wanted to bring together a culmination of a, of a few things. I wanted to have a role that um, was in a challenging area. I, I like challenge, I like transformation, I like change, I like those things. And, and I still wanted those intellectual challenges, if you like, in my in my job. I wanted to be in companies that cared about the impact that they have on the environment. Um, and then when I say the environment, I mean on the environment in which they exist. So things like social value and sustainability are incredibly important to me. And so I wanted to make sure that I worked um, in areas where we could either have the biggest impact that was possible 
or the least impact possible, depending on what, what, you're, what you're aiming at. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was important. But very importantly to me, the third stream was that I wanted to be able to operate in a way that I wanted to be the person that I wanted to have worked for some time ago. So I wanted to be able to create an environment where people wanted to work, could flourish, could learn, uh, could progress. That is very important to me. Um, and I, you know, I've walked away from a few environments where that wasn't the case. And so it's it's not so much about walking away from something that where my career uh, independently was not working. It was sometimes it's times when you're, you're not part of an environment that you're proud of. You're not part of an environment that you want to associate yourself with. And therefore, you know, if you can't change it, if you've tried to change it and you can, then sometimes it's time to just remove yourself from that environment. So Lisa, at this point, I just want to just, just hark back to something you did say, which was the, the comment about the speed of this development um, you went through at Lendlease. And this was the eight or nine different sort of job titles you had in, in that eight year sort of span which does sort of beg the question as then why did you leave? Yeah, I mean, again, you know, I've, I've worked for some fantastic organisations. Uh, Lendlease is another fantastic organisation. What they're, what they're aiming to do, the, the, the intent of that organisation, I was absolutely fully behind and, and I, I loved my time there. I think that um, sometimes um, there's a time and a place and I, I felt like I was running out of runway. I think that the the opportunities that were in front of me at the time I'm a bit impatient there's there's a time to hang fire there's a time when no this isn't working for me and I don't see it working in the in the time frame that I'm comfortable with so that you you have to know when to leave an organization as when as well as when to stay Mm -hmm. so at, at that point in time I couldn't see my future there anymore I didn't see something that I wanted to connect with and so, and, and actually something um, else happened in my personal life as well was that my very good friend, unfortunately, her sister uh, died uh, of cancer. And that was, she was very young and it was very tragic. And but sometimes this sort of mortality check is, um, it's an important element of life because it makes you think, what am I doing? I'm not enjoying day to day. And of course you can't enjoy every day. And there has to be times when you stick in there but there's equally times when you say, no, I want to put my efforts into the future, not into managing myself to stay where I am in the present. And that's what I decided to do. It was time to go. I'd enjoyed it. I'd given them a lot. They'd given me a lot. It was time to go. So what what comes next? So I, I, I handled it sort of a little bit unusually, really. I, was, I, I found out it was somewhat unusual retrospectively um, because I didn't know what was next. I didn't I didn't leave to go to another job. I left. And I left because I wanted some time and some space to think about what I wanted next. And I wanted to explore different avenues and have different conversations. And, and so that's what that's what I did. I took some time and I actually very on a personal level, I, I'd had a very full on career. I've got um, a daughter. And at that point in time, she was in year five at primary school. And it was lovely to be around a bit more and to have that opportunity to see her when she came home from school. And I got to know her on a level that I hadn't before from um, working full time and never being you know, around when she came in from school, for example. So I took that time to just consolidate things at home and to, to really enjoy um, being around her. And, and 
as a result of that, I did a, a number of different things. But one of the things that I did was start my own business. So that's what happened next. I, um, I started my own consultancy business aimed really at helping clients, helping, helping, helping people, helping people that had opportunities in the real estate world, but didn't really know how to capitalize on them. So I was bringing to bear all the different things that I've learned across, you know, all the different elements that we touched on before and, and helping people that were sort of bit of a bit of a, uh, an insulting term, but uneducated clients, as we call them, helping that, helping them with their opportunity and, and, helping them to unlock things, to move things forward, to, um, to strategize. That was, that was what I went on to do next. But as well as, as well as working, what that did, it was a lot freer. So working um, for myself meant that I, the structure was gone. The structure of working in a corporate and so on was gone. And that gave me time to do the things that I wanted to do besides that. So I started to spend a lot of time coaching and mentoring different people. I did that altruistically, so I didn't do it. I didn't do it as a line of business. I just did it to, to help people. And of course, the great thing about those sorts of uh, interactions is that you get something out of it as well, or else you wouldn't kind mm-hmm. of continue to do it. But I really, really enjoyed helping people to unlock things in their in their life that was going on, and help or helping just to helping to helping them to see the horizon, helping them to see how they might get through the next you know, get bridged to the thing that they're trying to get to, identify the thing that they're trying to get to. I really enjoyed working with people and, and helping them to solve those problems. But again, benefit of hindsight tells me that that does come to an end and you're sort of attracted back into uh, another business. How? How do they, how do they manage to, to get you back involved in a in this sort of large, larger business? Yeah, I felt a little bit like I was moving in the opposite direction to everybody else. You know, I, on paper, I had the perfect, uh, the perfect <laughs> setup, really. I had absolute freedom. I was, at, you know, financially, it was all going very well and, um, uh, and so on and so forth. But what, what I found was that it was, it, was quite, um, it was quite lonely. It was quite working, working for yourself like that. Um, it's a very, very different team environment, you know, essentially very, very small team. And you just don't have that same camaraderie that you have in, in a corporate environment. And I, I've worked in a lot of different cultures, but they've all essentially been corporate environments. And I think that I just am a corporate environment. I'm comfortable in a, I'm a corporate animal. I'm comfortable in a corporate environment. I, I know how to navigate it. I know how to help people progress their careers through it. And, and so I just, I just decided that I wanted to go back into a corporate environment. And, and hence my conversation with um, EcoWorld. And six months ago, I joined and that's where I am today. Well, just bring us up to speed and tell us a little bit more about sort of the, what you're getting involved in now. So the things that I like about EcoWorld is that the, the, the pinnacle of the strategy is the ESG agenda. So EcoWorld, E-C-O, has a, a, a strategy that sits behind it around exceptional environment, connected community, outstanding organisations. And that is the ESG agenda that everything else springboards from. So we want to do the best by the environment that we can. We want to connect with communities and have a meaningful impact on the on the environments in which we um, the neighborhoods in which we bring in developments to bear Um, and we want to be an outstanding organization ourselves but we also want to help 
in terms of the stewardship of those places that we create, that they can flourish in the future and under their own steam, you know, that we don't have to be there um, sort of holding the hand, that we've set it up and worked with people on a local level in a way that means that it can continue organically itself. And so although EcoWorld is, you know, a relatively new organisation, and so it's it's fairly early on in its journey, it was really important with me to connect on those sorts of levels with an organisation so that I felt at my heart we were on the same page. Okay. So Lisa, just at this point, I just want to bring in just another piece of uh, research that came up. And there was a recurring theme in whoever we spoke to about you. And that was about not only your leadership style, but also about how effective it was as well. Now, specifically, this is what one person said. Lisa receives as much as she transmits, which in my opinion is very rare for a leader. That's quite, yeah, it's quite a, sort of a short sort of comment, but I spent a bit of time sort of thinking about that and sort of and thinking about and thinking about different types of uh, of leaders. And I think that's, I think I'd probably say that is true about about receiving more than more than they transmit. Is that conscious? Is that threaded through your whole sort of philosophy around leadership? Yeah, so I think that um, that's so lovely to hear because it is something that I've worked really, really hard on. And I, I think there's a couple of things that I believe about um, development, about personal development, is that if you've got the learning agility and you've got the desire and you, you're armed with a bit of knowledge and a bit of know-how, you can morph and change into anything you want to be. And I didn't used to think that. I used to think, I'm like this. This is what I am. Take me or leave me kind of thing. This is it either works for you or it doesn't. And I really don't believe that anymore. And I think that um, I've, I've worked so hard on certain aspects of, of my interface, my, my, you know, my, not my character, but the way in which I'm perceived, the way in which I interact with people. So it is, it's lovely to hear that it's actually born a bit of fruit. So that's, that's nice. Um, but I think receiving is, in, is obviously your ears, but I receive a lot with my eyes. I watch a lot. I, I, I know that a lot of the things that I learn about people, I watch from watching how things land with them, watching their reaction. What's, I, 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 I'm observing a lot of the time. Um, so I think between what this, I think this is especially true in Britain, what is said is not always what is going on. So mm-hmm. you, you need to watch as well as hear to really try to get the full picture. Um, so no, that is, that is very definitely something that I've, I've worked very hard on. And then before we wrap up, I want to ask you one last question. And that's about legacy. What would you like your lasting legacy to uh, to include? So if we go back to the 12-year-old Lisa, who wanted to be chair of ICI, yep. and notice I, I use the word chair, not chairman, um, I, that's not my ambition anymore, because I no longer care about what I do in that kind of sense, you know, where I get to. For me, the legacy is, is about the impact that I have on other people. So if I helped three other people get one or two steps further on in their career as a result of you know, their interaction with me, for example, that I helped them unlock their potential, that's way more important to me than where I get to um, in my own, you know, my own little um, work stream kind of thing. I am still ambitious. I still want to achieve things. I'm still very commercially driven and all the rest of it. But it's now multifaceted and I'm looking left and I'm looking right and, and I care about those people that are there. 
Well, Lisa, I've, I've got to I've got to wrap this up, unfortunately. But thank you so much for for sharing these uh, these thoughts and these lessons you've learned so far. There's no doubt the guys listening to to this will have really benefited from this. So thank you again. Thank you, Nick. Lovely to be here today. Thank you.